Luke chapter 16, we're not going to start until verse 19, sorry. Luke chapter 16, starting verse 19. Um, It's page 511, if you got one of our Bibles. And we're going to continue on through our series uh, that we've been working our way through some of the parables of Jesus. Uh, We're going to do that for a couple more weeks, and then we are celebrating our fourth birthday as a church. Woohoo! And... uh, and then we're going to be into a new series. So we will announce that as we go. Uh, a couple other things. You guys uh, responded incredibly well uh, from the volunteer thing. We actually, maybe for the first time in the history of our church, have uh, like the same amount of volunteers as we have spaces within kids' ministry. And so that was pretty cool for my wife. Thank you for doing that for my wife, because she runs our kids' ministry, if you didn't know. Um, so usually we try and get her downstairs twice a month, and that never happens, Um, and it might happen this quarter, so good on you guys. Well done. Um, And then we have small groups starting up here in a couple weeks, too. I think they'll probably, most of them will start after the holiday weekend, so keep an eye out on the website for that. So Luke chapter 16 is where we're going. Today we get a parable about hell, which you guys all woke up this morning, was like, I want to learn about hell, and I know that's super popular, like, Please, somebody tell me, like, about fire and brimstone and scare me into heaven. That's what everybody was thinking this morning, right? Yeah, I was, like, getting a guy. Yeah, it just, nobody wants to talk about this. Um, And yet, if you look in the scriptures, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person uh, in your Bible. He talked about it a ton. He clearly thought it was a real place. He clearly thought it was a real thing. Um, And so people say, like, oh, I believe in Jesus. And then they, like, try and... You know, because they're uncomfortable with these different things, they don't want this part of what Jesus said or that part of what Jesus said. Uh, Imagine if you said that to your wife. Like, I really love you. I just, there's like eight things about you that I can't stand. So I'm just going to avoid those. Your wife would be like, right? There's no chance of that. And so people do that with Jesus all the time. And that's just an inconsistent way to view life, right? Uh, If you think he was God like he said he was, then he probably knew what he was talking about when he talked about hell. So, Uh, Today we're going to get a story um, about a guy who ends his life and realizes he cannot turn around. Um, And Stephen actually said something last week when he was leading worship, and he said that it was a gift of God to repent, and repentance is just this idea of turning around. It was actually like a kindness for God to allow you to turn around. And you've ever been in a spot where you're not allowed to turn around? That's a really terrible spot to be in. I don't know if you've ever been in that spot before. Um, my wife and I, I was telling a friend this week that um, my wife and I were four-wheeling one time, and Toby was in the back, and we had uh, a guy in our church in Colorado that had this little tiny purple Suzuki sidekick that he had, like, jacked up and, like, made a four-wheel drive, like, monster out of, and it, it was a convertible. It was super fun, so I got asked to teach at this church in the mountains, and so I asked this guy in our church, I said, hey, can I borrow your sidekick? Because he was a super generous guy. And I was like, and I'll go on some of the four-wheel drive trails uh, while we're in the mountains. It'll be like a fun family day for my family. And so he's like, yeah, no problem, man. He was just excited that someone would use it. So we take this thing out and we teach at the church and it was great. And then we start heading up this four-wheel drive trail that I've been up before in our forerunner, but our forerunner is a 2005, so it has like some of these newer things like traction control and it's an automatic and stuff like that. And this little matchbox car, Suzuki, 
was not that new, so it didn't have any of those things. Plus, it was a stick, which I'm fine with driving a stick until the road's like this, right? And I was like, oh, maybe I should have thought this through. So we get to this one point where there's like three kind of like cliffs that you have to go straight up. They're not tall. They're maybe like two feet tall, but you got to go fast enough that you make it over the top of these kind of three little cliff faces. But you don't want to go too fast so that you hit the first one and your wheels just go straight up and you roll back down the entire mountain. So like I had done this in my forerunner and it was fine. And now I'm driving a stick and I'm like trying to figure this out. And I didn't want to go over backwards, so I didn't go fast enough. So we got up the first one and then we got about part way up the second one and we're stuck. And I'm just holding the brake and I'm like, what do we do? And Megan's like, turn around. I was like, you can't turn around. Like We're like looking straight up the cliff and I was like, that's a terrible feeling to not be able to turn around. Like the only way like is we're going over backwards. I'm in a stick. So like there's no way we're going upward. I mean, it was just awful. And like I just remember that panicky feeling of like, I wish I would have turned around earlier. I wish I would have turned around earlier. And, and Jesus this morning is helping you. He's telling you, some of you, all of you actually, he's telling. Some of you will need to listen turn around before you can't turn around and you feel terrible. Now, to finish my story so you're not thinking about it the whole time, uh, we made it. Like, we backed down that thing. It was awful and terrifying, but we finally made it up and we're still alive today to tell about it. But that is a terrible feeling when you cannot turn around. There's other instances in life where I was like, man, I wish we could go back and we couldn't. And so Jesus is going to give us a story about that. And there's an interesting statistic I looked up this week just about how many people actually listen to good authority? Uh, they did a study a number of years back uh, about people who had massive heart attacks and survived. And so what happened is you'd have a massive heart attack, you go into the hospital, then you talk to your doctor, right? And the doctor would say, okay, these are the things that need to change. And the big three were exercise, diet, and something else. What was the other one? Who's had a heart attack? Who knows? No, don't tell me. Uh, exercise, diet, oh, smoking, right? Those are the big three. Like, you need to stop smoking, you need to change your diet, and you need to start exercising. Only 4.3% of people actually changed those three areas of their life. 96% almost of people had a massive heart attack, almost died. Their doctor was like, hey, you're not going to live very much longer if you don't change these things, and they still didn't turn around. Crazy. Crazy. So don't be that guy. Here we go. Luke chapter 16, starting verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So Jesus is telling this story. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers. 
so that he may warn them, lest also they come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them and from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. All right, so let's start where the story starts, and that's with a quick description of the characters involved. The verse 19 tells us there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. So we get this picture of a very wealthy man who not only had everything he needed, but everything he wanted. Okay, like he had whatever he felt like. In fact, there's two different descriptions in there. They said he had purple, which is the most expensive type of clothing. Uh, To dye clothing in those days was kind of a luxury thing. To dye it purple was really luxurious because purple was hard to come by. And there was only like two methods of dyeing that actually turned out a purple garment and they were very expensive. So if you had purple clothes, you were like, whoa, like driving a luxury car or something like that. Everybody was impressed. And then it said, Purple clothes and fine linen. Now, linen was like your undergarments. So this dude's so tight, he's got fancy underwear, is what we were just told. Like, that's impressive. And it says he feasted sumptuously every single day. So not only is he just eating and his basic needs are met, but he is feasting. Every, like, his basic needs are met above and beyond what is reasonable. Like, he has so much. He's a guy who is literally above and beyond comfortable. Now, contrast that with the second guy, verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even when the dogs came and licked his sores. So this man's name is Lazarus. He apparently is not mobile, like he has to be laid at the rich man's gate. So the rich man apparently has a big old house with a gate around it. At the gate, at the entrance, Lazarus is laying there hoping that maybe uh, that feast that this rich man is eating every day, if there's some leftovers, that he'll bring them out and give Lazarus some. But the, the fact that it says he desired to be fed seems like he wasn't. Like Lazarus was laying literally at the gate of this man's house and was receiving nothing from this wealthy man, even though there was probably plenty extra. And he was so devoid of not only just kind of normal, basic human needs like food and clothing, but relational needs like companionship, that the only people who care for him are the dogs as they lick his sores. He has like open wounds that dogs are licking because nobody is actually helping him. So what does all this mean? If we pause right here in the story, what can we discern from this situation? What are we supposed to gather from this? Okay, we got a super rich guy, a super poor guy, really difficult life. What are we supposed to understand from these people's life? Well, most of us have been trained and know what's coming. So we say, right, oh, the richness doesn't mean anything. He's wealthy, it's okay. Like it doesn't mean a ton. But when we live life, we kind of treat poor people like maybe they're not quite as important as wealthy people, right? So we know what we should say, but the what we practice, right? We drive by the homeless guy on the street, we're like, probably lazy, probably could get a job, just doesn't want to work, probably doesn't want to, you know, take care of his family or, you know, we have all these things in our mind why that poor person, that homeless person, that person in a really destitute situation is probably not as valuable as a human being as our 
middle-class wealthy neighbor or, or the rich guy that we know somewhere, right? It, this is a real struggle, right? We probably wouldn't say that out loud because everybody would be like, you're a bad person. You are a bad person, but that's why Jesus died for you. Good news. Um, you need to know that about yourself is we have this tendency to view wealth and success as some sort of blessing from God or some sort of indicator that that person is pleasing to God. And then we have this kind of mental thing where we look at poor people and people who are really struggling in life. And we're like, they're probably not as pleasing to God as everybody else. And that happens even in 2021. That was not just a first century problem. But as we know in our story, the homeless man ends up in heaven and the rich man ends up in hell. And Jesus knows the name of Lazarus. He doesn't even mention the name of the rich man. In fact, if you talk about it, it says Lazarus was carried by angels at his death to heaven. So like angels attended Lazarus's funeral. Uh, we don't see any such heavenly invitation from the rich man's death. And it's all a good reminder to us that people are tempted to overlook or look down upon other people who are precious in God's sight and valuable to his kingdom. So look at verse 22. It says this, the poor man died, was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. So here we have two locations, okay? One of them is not named. It's wherever Abraham is. And the, the Lazarus is next to Abraham at his side. Uh, and then the other one is called Hades, which you probably recognize as a word for hell. So you're like, why doesn't Jesus just tell us there's heaven and there's hell? Well, there is two locations, and that's probably the terminology you're most familiar with, is heaven and hell. But technically speaking, this is not heaven and hell. When Jesus is telling the story, nobody can go to heaven. You're like, wait a second, why not? In order to get into heaven, Jesus has to die for your sins. And what has not happened in history yet when Jesus is telling the story is Jesus has not died on the cross for anybody's sin. So sin is not paid for. So at this point in time, as Jesus is telling the story, he hasn't died for anybody's sin. And so everybody still has to bear the weight of their own punishment and guilt on themselves. Everybody still has to pay for their own sin. Now there is apparently, because of the story, some sort of kind of like holding tank within hell for people who have placed their faith in God, but for whom Jesus has not yet died for their sins. And the Bible actually talks about when Jesus dies for their sins, they're taken out of that holding tank and into heaven, which is where, the where God is. So they're in the presence of the Lord. But at this point in time, they're not there yet. I hope that's not too confusing for you, but um, yeah, I'm trying to be accurate, not just make it easy for you to understand. So this is what you need to know. These are people who are on their way to heaven and on their way to hell, but they're just not there yet. They're in like this holding tank. And I think that's why Jesus uses Abraham as the person who identifies this place, because Abraham most clearly went to heaven. Okay, Abraham most clearly ended up in the good spot, not the bad spot. And so when we see Lazarus sitting there next to Abraham, we know this guy's on his way to heaven as soon as Jesus ends up dying on the cross for their sins. I do want to point out, as we go through this story, that as Abraham and this man have a conversation, nowhere in this conversation do we see 
anybody accusing God of sending this man to hell. Abraham doesn't accuse him of it. The man doesn't even accuse God of it. It sounds like a choice that this man makes. And that's actually how we see this described in the Bible. Yes, at the end of it all, God judges us and will send us one place or the other. But it's a choice you get to make. And that's why Jesus is telling you to turn around. He wouldn't waste his breath telling people to turn around unless it was a choice that they were allowed to make. Does that make sense? It's like, turn around. I can't. Oh, well, never mind that. No, he tells people to turn around because they have that ability. And God doesn't force anybody to go to hell. They choose. They choose it, as we read, by the way they live their life. Abraham brings himself up. He's like, hey, remember back in life how things went? What you chose to do? How you chose to not help Lazarus out? You kind of made your choice, man. You kind of made your choice. So anyway, um, we have this holding tank place. Apparently, it's in the vicinity of hell, which uh, you would expect it to be if people haven't had their sins forgiven yet. Uh, it's emptied out now. So if you die today, you're not going to this place. You're going to where Abraham is now, which is in the presence of God in heaven. Hopefully that's not too confusing for you. Uh, side note, if you've been around church for a while, back in the 1600s, the first English Bible that was kind of widely circulated was called the King James Version. And instead of side, they used the word bosom. So you might have heard people talking about Abraham's bosom, which is just about the weirdest description for a place you've ever heard in your whole dang life. But people have said that for probably a couple hundred years talking about Abraham's bosom. They're just talking about this holding tank place for people who are on their way to heaven. So you're welcome. Here we go. Verse 24. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So we get some interesting details here in this relationship and condition of heaven and hell from Jesus's story. First, we clearly have what Jesus calls anguish and flame in the story. So there's some differing opinions on what hell is going to be like, right? And some people want to make it more comfortable to talk about. And so they're like, ah, you know, the hell and this whole thing, well, it doesn't sound very politically correct to talk about this. Well, Jesus seems to think that it's a place of isolation, torment, and some sort of flames. Just kind of like your historical picture of hell. Now, interesting side note, many people who study this type of thing think that it is very possible that this was not a parable, but actually a true story. Because Jesus tells it kind of like it's a true story. And if this is a parable, it's a little bit of a weird one because Jesus actually names a man, Lazarus, who's in the parable. And he never does that in any other of his parables. Jesus never gives his parable characters names. So this could be Jesus just telling something that actually happened and took place. Lots of people think, uh, who are smarter than me think that that is true. So if this is a true story, then it seems to give us quite a bit of information about heaven and hell, what they're like, such as the rich man talking to Abraham. So if you've ever wondered if you're going to recognize people in heaven or hell, 
Seems like you will, right? The rich man wasn't like, who's that naked baby floating on that cloud up there? He's like, no, 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 that's Abraham, right? He recognized him. So kids sometimes have that question. Are we going to recognize people in heaven? Seems like it. And you may be wondering why this man talks to Abraham and not God. I would talk to God, right? If, if I was like trying to get myself out of hell, I'd be like, God, help me out here. But God's not in the holding tank. Okay? So understand that, right? This is like a holding tank. Abraham's there. But the other thing is, uh, and we'll talk more about this moment, but Jesus is teaching specifically to a Jewish religious audience. These are Jewish religious leaders who he's having this kind of verbal altercation with. Like I said, we'll develop that more in a second. But Abraham is the most significant figure in that entire religious system. So he's like talking about the top guy in their entire religious system, Abraham. And if you look at the conversation between the rich man and Abraham, the rich man calls Abraham Father Abraham, like a religiously devout Jewish man would. And the rich man is called child by Abraham. So he says, Father Abraham, and then Abraham responds, child, right? So all of this Jewish religious system is founded upon, we're the children of Abraham, we're going to heaven, God loves us more because we're the chosen people, we're the children of Abraham, and there is no argument from Abraham or anybody in the story about that. The guy doesn't go, Father Abraham, and Abraham's like, who you call a father? I don't know you. No, that's not what happens. Right? He calls him child. And so what just happened is Jesus told a story where a religiously, at least educated, like he's not ignorant of religion. He seems to acknowledge Abraham as his father so he knows something what's going on in the religious system. And Abraham acknowledges him as his child, and yet this man is still in hell. That would have been mind-blowing for these people. Like, wait, 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 what? We are children of Abraham. We don't go to hell. Jesus is like. And so we see this indicator that there is no biological connection that is going to get you into heaven. Right? There is no, this is a, about a condition of the heart. That's what he's going to talk about for the rest of this chapter, or for the rest of the story. It's going to be the condition of the heart determines where you go for eternity, not some sort of circumstance that you were born into or some outward thing. Like, it doesn't matter biologically who you're connected to. It doesn't matter if you live in America and voted for the right red or blue team, or, you know, you, I stayed in line at Chick-fil-A for mediocre chicken for three hours. I'm going to heaven. Not true. It's about the condition of your heart. The, the Jewish people even recited prayers that were thanking God for making them children of Abraham. I thank you that I'm a child of Abraham. I'm not a Gentile, which is the Jewish word for somebody who's not Jewish. Right? I thank you that I'm not a dog. I think, right? And yet, Jesus is now telling this story of a man who is clearly a child of Abraham and yet ends up in hell. And when the rich man asks for this thing, Abraham says, Remember in life how Lazarus used to be laid at your gate? and ask you for stuff, and you didn't help him out at all? And now, ironically, you are asking Lazarus to help you out when before in life you didn't help Lazarus out? It's like pointing that out. He's like, hey, this is a condition of the heart thing. You made your choice. You made your choice, man. You, you can't turn around any longer. It's not the biological connection that has led this person to where he is. It seems to be the way he lived his life. 
It seems to be that the choice was made by the way he lived when he was on earth. And that makes the difference between heaven and hell. Now, at this point, I will point out that the rich man asked for something very odd. He doesn't ask to get out of hell, which is what most of us would ask for, right? Like every convict that's ever been in is like, no, they got it all wrong. The evidence, I'm innocent. But he doesn't do that. He asks for this little tiny thing. He says, the torment is so bad and like so consistent. I just want a drop of water on my tongue to break up the constancy of this torment. And he asks for this little tiny thing. And Abraham says, no. And it's kind of this indicator that once the choice is made for heaven or hell, once life has been lived, there is no going back. There is no changing of the circumstances. There's this kind of idea floating around that there's like purgatory or something. We can work our way out of it. There's no working your way out of this. This is, this is final. This is how it's going to be. You get a chance. You get a chance to live for eternity. It's called life. And at the end, the choice is made. And the decision made is final. Now, this gets offensive to people, right? We read this and we're like, really, Jared? It's 2021. You're going to go fire and brimstone on everybody? Like, you're going to go to hell if you don't fix your life. Feel bad and leave, right? I mean, that's kind of like, okay, good for you, Christians. We knew this was coming. And yet, I'm not trying to, like Jesus was not trying to, have a fear-based message trying to scare you into heaven. I will tell you the point of Jesus' story was not to scare people into heaven. The point of Jesus' story was to point out that the way the religious leaders were living their lives and the things they were counting on to get them into heaven were not the qualifications that actually get a person into heaven. So Jesus was telling you, hey, turn around. Turn around. Go the other way. The thing that you think is actually going to get you into heaven, your Jewishness, your wealth, like your success, the fact that people know you, none of those things are actually going to get you into heaven. You need to change your priorities. Uh, We have some friends that uh, their son is the same age as Toby. Um, if if, if If there's any parents in the crowd that like, have a certain secret about a giant red guy uh, on Christmas time that hands out presents and they don't want to hear, like, close your ears right now. So anyway, we have friends, and their son is the same age as Toby. And, uh, and for whatever reason, um, we just didn't tell Toby about Santa Claus. Like, it was just not something we did. Not because, like, I'm in a cult or something, but just because I was like, I don't want to lie to my kids. So we never did. And when he got old enough, he was like, wait, these kids believe in the Santa guy? I was like, yeah, just it's a game between them and their parents, but they don't know it's a game, so just don't tell them. And Toby's like, all right. So we just, that's kind of how we handled it. So this kid that Toby's friends with goes to school one day, and he's like, eight or something, seven or eight, six, seven, I don't know, one of these ages, it was a couple years ago, and he comes home, and he found out that Santa Claus wasn't real, right, and he goes to his mom, and he's like, Santa Claus isn't real, and the mom's like, oh, who told you, and it's like, school, and he's like, oh, yeah, and so the first thing this kid said, he's like, I gotta go tell Toby, and, and the mom was like, actually, Toby already knows, and the kid was devastated, he's like, Toby knew the whole time and he didn't tell me he's like are you kidding me I was like sorry man like that's our fault like 
I mean, like, you don't know what to do. But even an eight-year-old knows, right? Like, if you know something that's going to help me, please tell me, right? Like, don't just let me believe this crap. Like, tell me what's going on here. And so you may not like the idea of hell, and you might be like, ah, I don't know, that's not very politically correct, like telling people they're going to hell. I'm not telling anybody they're going to hell. I'm telling you hell exists so that you know. Like, I don't want you to get to the end. Like, this guy didn't be like, why didn't anybody tell you? Actually, we did tell you. Actually, we were very clear. Like, this place exists. And yes, it's offensive. It's supposed to be offensive. Like, God does not want anybody to go to hell. Hell was created for the angels who had fallen and decided to rebel against God. And then people chose to go there. God didn't create hell for bad people. He's like, oh, man, these people suck. Where am I going to send them? No, no, no. The angels made their choice to rebel against God. God's like, all right, well, if you don't want any of the cool stuff I give, then you can live without it all, and I'll create a place for you. And then people obviously followed suit. And we're like, you know what? This Bible thing, I don't really, I'm not into it. I don't love this God guy. I'm going to choose to go there. And so that's why hell is offensive in our minds. But don't shoot the messenger. God is doing you a kindness by alerting you to the fact that your life could end up here. And you may not like the idea, and that's actually the point. You shouldn't like the idea of hell. But God really desires that nobody goes there. You can think it's old-fashioned and fear-mongering, whatever else you think about the idea of hell. But if that place is real, and Jesus seemed to think it was very real, Jesus talked about it more than anyone else in your Bible, it is a kindness that God actually warns you about hell. Last point from this section. There is a very obvious reversal going on here, right? Rich guy has a comfortable life, ends up in eternal torment. Guy who had a tormented life ends up in eternal comfort. But the reasoning for why each ended up where they are is not because if you have a good life, you go to hell. If you have a bad life, you go to heaven. That's not actually why they ended up where they ended up. The reasoning doesn't even suggest, hey, you had your chance. You should have been nicer to Lazarus. You, you could have met his needs. None of that. The reasoning is going to start starting in verse 27. So let's read that part. And he said, this is the rich man still talking to Abraham here. And the rich man said to Abraham, then I beg you, father, to send Lazarus, him, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the rich man seems to be acknowledging two things, that hope for himself is over. Right? He's not arguing for himself. Right? Abraham's like, hey, man, you, may, you lived your life. Do you remember how life went down? Lazarus is at your gate. He asked you for help. You're like, nah, I'm good. Now you're asking him for help. Like the rich man is not arguing for himself. And so he seems to think and understand that hope for himself, his choice has been made. And interesting that the second thing he seems to acknowledge is that his brothers are on that same path. That same exact path headed to that same exact conclusion. So he says, hey, Abraham, can you send Lazarus to tell my brothers about what's going on? And what happens is uh, 
there's this idea of like, hey, send somebody over. Tell them what's going on. Tell them they're going to go to hell. Tell them, you know, like that's a great idea, God. You should send somebody who knows what's going on to earth to tell everybody. That is good. Why has God never thought of that? He did. His name was Jesus. He's telling everybody right now. Right? This guy's like, okay, I got the idea. Okay, you, apparently I didn't have enough information. You should send somebody from heaven that knows. Yeah, that's exactly what God did. His name was Jesus. And he's warning people about hell right now. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Okay? So Moses and the prophets, what is that? You're like, at this point, with Jesus is saying that Moses and prophets have been dead for a long time. Moses authored the first five books of your Bible, if you didn't know. And the prophets not only warned Israel time and time again that they were going the wrong way, but many of them authored books of your Bible as well. So what Jesus is, or what Abraham is saying to this man right now is not that, hey, Moses and the prophets, the actual people are, are the warning enough. He's saying the word of God, you have it. You have the word, you have the Bible. That's enough. That's enough of a warning for anybody. And the guy goes, no, it's not enough of a warning. I, we would turn around if somebody actually rose from the dead. Like, the, but you, you can't expect the Bible. We can't read all that. We can't even understand it. It's not enough of a warning. And, and Abraham's like, no, no, no. It's actually more than enough of a warning. Nobody's going to get to heaven and be like, you didn't give me enough information to turn around. Actually, you were given more than enough information to turn around. So what's really going on is that Abraham is saying they have the Bible, they have the word of God. If they want to end up in hell, it's not complicated. If they don't want to go to hell, it's not complicated. Just listen to the word of God. And the word of God is enough. And this man says, no, it's not enough. It actually is enough. And the answer from Abraham is, if they reject the word of God, they would find a way to ignore even somebody who raised from the dead which is an interesting quote from this man because Jesus has been raised from the dead for 2,000 years and we've been saying that and people have been ignoring it. He's raised from the dead. Nah, Bible, that thing, sexist, patriarchal, historically inaccurate. Uh, actually, no, that, that, he rose from the dead to warn you of what the afterlife was really like. So, as we close, let's zoom out a little bit and remember why Jesus actually told the story at all so we can apply it to our lives. First, if you back up a little bit, you will see Jesus is having this interaction with the Jewish religious leaders. It says in verse 14, so go up your page. And if you're a white or blue baby, you're going to have to go left. In verse 14 of chapter 16, it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So they're ridiculing Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so they're having this interaction and Jesus is saying, hey, your priorities are all out of whack. And that's why he's warning them. He's saying, you prioritize things that are not actually helping you in eternity. You are prioritizing things that when you get to the end of your life are going to be completely worthless. And Jesus is telling them to turn around. Turn around. Your priorities are way out of whack. And in this story, we see this man 
and his wealth and his success did not get him into heaven. And Jesus was basically saying that if you view wealth and success and popularity as a sign of God's favor, the truth is that's not always an indicator of God's favor. Favor, right? The truth is being wealthy, like you can't look at your life and be like, look at all this stuff. God must be happy with me. False. Satan could give you a bunch of stuff too to ruin your life. And if you flip that around, that also means if you don't have a bunch of stuff, you cannot conclude that God is somehow angry with you. If you didn't get the job or you didn't get the raise or your financial success hasn't been great or you are not in a comfortable spot, that doesn't mean God hates you. That's not an indicator that God is somehow mad at you. You can't, you can't ascertain anything from wealth or non-wealth because it doesn't mean anything in eternity. In the story, we also see that this man's religiousness did not get him into heaven. God, I'm a child of Abraham. I follow the rules. I know what I should believe. And yet this man's connection to this religious system without a heart change does not end. It does him no good in eternity. It doesn't end up in the right place. In fact, as we read this story, there's actually not any indication about what gets you into heaven. Did you see that? It's not a story about what gets you into heaven. He's, not, he's preached that a bunch of times as he's told these stories. Now he is not preaching that. He's just yelling, turn around. He's given us like four or five things that are keeping you out of heaven. He said, you guys, you're doing these things and these things are keeping you out of heaven. So what are the things that are keeping them out of heaven? Well, we talked about the first one. The religious leaders glorified what God condemned and celebrated things that were meaningless in eternity. They glorified things like wealth and health and comfort, and they overlooked and neglected the needs that were right in front of them. That kept them out of heaven. Another thing that we see that keeps people out of heaven is a lack of repentance. Look at, if you verse, verse 30, he says, my brothers need to repent. They won't repent unless somebody comes back from the dead. They'll turn around. Lack of repentance, like we talked about last week, keeps people out of heaven. If you never turn around, it will keep you out of heaven. Hear that this morning. Like we talked about last week, one of the things that keep people out of heaven is a lack of repentance. Interestingly enough, though, the message is not if you would have been nicer to Lazarus, you would have gone to heaven. That is a reason that you're not in heaven, but that would not have gotten you in. Just, just fixing that would not have got you into heaven. He didn't, Abraham doesn't say that anywhere. What he does say is if they don't believe the scriptures, they won't go to heaven. They have Moses in the Bible. They have the Bible. And what's keeping them out is they don't believe it. They don't accept it. They think it's something not applicable to their lives. And the religious leaders are probably like, well, we believe the Bible. We're, we're Pharisees, man. We teach the Bible. We got this. And yet, it was a warning. It was a warning that they were too proud to hear. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, um, I'm not great with movies. I should have my wife tell this story because she remembers like all the movies and actors and something like that. There's a movie and it might've been Chevy Chase. Maybe it was John Candy. I don't know. They're driving the wrong way on the freeway. Does this ring a bell to anybody? Anyway, we're going to keep going. 
they're going somewhere and they're driving the wrong way on the freeway and they go really fast and it's like a storm and the people see them driving the wrong way on the freeway. So they're on the right side of the freeway and they're like, roll down your window. And so he like rolls down his window and he's like, they're yelling from the car, you're going the wrong way. And he's like, what? Because it's windy. He's like, you're going the wrong way. And he's like, okay, thank you. And he rolls up his window and his passenger's like, what'd they say? And he's like, we're going the wrong way. He's like, but how do they know where we're going? Right? He's like, you're go don't be that prideful. Right? Jesus is warning you. And, he, and like some of you are like in your mind, like, how does he know where I'm going? You're on the wrong path. You're on the wrong way on the freeway. Like this only ends in destruction. Don't be that prideful to ignore the warning of Jesus. He's telling people to turn around this morning. People whose priorities are off, he's telling you to turn around. People who are in love with wealth and success, he's telling you to turn around. People who refuse to repent, he's telling you to turn around. People who are not listening to the scriptures, he's telling you to turn around. Not because he's threatening you. He's, he's not mad at you. He's not angry math teacher in the sky like, fix this. He's saying it out of love because he wants what's best for your life. Amen? <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us and how it encourages us and what a kindness it is that you make us aware of destruction that we are headed towards. And I pray that every single person in here would not be too proud to listen to what your spirit is saying in their hearts. There are people in here who your spirit has brought up specific areas in their life that need to change. There are people in here who your spirit has brought up broad areas of life that need to change. Maybe there's one issue that needs to be different. Maybe there's a whole bunch, and you just need to take that small baby step this morning. I pray that we would be listening to your spirit, God. I pray that you would give us that kindness of hearing you say, turn around. Father, bless these people this morning. Bless them with the gift of repentance. And we ask you in your mighty and precious name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we sing this last song.